was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I love those, that, that verse. 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Then chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of of a man except the man's spirit within him in the same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God we have not received the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us this is what we speak not in words taught to us by human wisdom but in words taught by the spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." A lot is being said in what I just read regarding wisdom and and the wisdom of the world versus godly wisdom. 
And so this morning we're going to preach on the unwisdom of God. Now, where does that come from? Well, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, any other students here or people here that grew up in the 70s or 80s, 90s, 2000s? Anyway, I don't want to go further back than that because more hands would be up. But when I was growing up in the 1970s, there was an ad campaign in which 7-Up branded themselves as the Uncola. How many remember that ad campaign? As a part of its new Uncola advertising strategy, the 7-Up company had J. Walter Thompson produce a TV commercial starring actor, director, and choreographer Jeffrey Holder as a Caribbean planter explaining the difference between cola nuts and the 7-Up Uncola nuts, which were the lemon and the lime. The extraordinary performance of the Trinidad-born uh, Mr. Jeffrey Holder made the spot one of the most remembered commercials of all times. Matter of fact, this week I was just doing some memory things and going back, and you can watch it on YouTube. It's, it's pretty cool. You can watch these old commercials, and, and then you remember back then. But behind the scenes, the project also represented a dramatic change in the marketing culture of the soft drink company because for the first time a person of color was cast in a TV ad. Jeffrey Holder would explain then on the commercial how regular colas come from the cola nut. And he has, he's holding the big old cola nut. But 7-Up, he says, comes from the un-cola nut, the lemon and the lime. He would pour some into an ice-filled glass and it would sparkle and fizz and he would say something like, Crisp and clean, and no caffeine. Never had it, never will. And then he would do his, his laugh, and his laugh was as much as part of the campaign as anything else. And it was, ha, 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 Remember that one? All right, it's a great commercial. Well, those ads were quite effective. They helped people understand that in the soft drink wars, 7-Up stood alone, apart from the rest, and there's nothing else like it. Well, nowadays we have Sierra Mist, we have, we have a Sprite, but I'm still, I gotta, gotta confess, I still like 7-Up better than those two, and I have 7-Up in my house, in my office, at our cabin. I still like 7-Up, and I like putting, I don't know, probably from the commercial back when, I like squeezing fresh lemon and fresh lime even in my 7-Up. And it's very refreshing if you haven't done that. I'm just saying that it was a very successful ad campaign and very successful for the 7-Up brand. Well, the idea of being the Uncola resonated with a large number of people. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but uh, if I was to take a survey this morning, how many like 7-Up, Sprite, or, or Sierra Mist, you know, whatever, um, I'm still a 7-Up kind of a guy. And even was taught, I guess, as a kid, when your stomach's upset, to drink warm 7-Up. Anybody else been taught that? All right, all right, good. Anyway, in 1 Corinthians, Paul presents God's wisdom, you could say, as the unwisdom, as the unwisdom, a kind of wisdom that is functionally the opposite of what man might call traditional wisdom. Throughout the first chapter, Paul speaks rather dismissively of wisdom. For example, verse 20, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And then verse 21, he says, The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 
And then in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that his message was not delivered with human wisdom. In other words, Paul, Paul is not saying wisdom is bad. He's just dismissing, if you will, the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. The world's wisdom. So, so Paul was saying these things, and he said, yeah, wisdom is important. And he's saying, but it's God's wisdom that we really must have, the unwisdom of God. And he was comparing that then with the theological thoughts that the Greeks had, that they loved to listen to, whatever. And all through these various philosophies that we talked about in the last few weeks, uh, they contained some, maybe some brilliant ideas, as well as bits and pieces of truth, but none of the philosophies of the age really offered them the truth. Now, Paul is saying that, that the philosophy of this world cannot bring you into an accurate understanding of the nature of God, the human condition, and the sinful condition of mankind, as well as God's plan of redemption. Church, the fullness of truth can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ, period. Now, it, he, Jesus was not just some colorful teacher, a character from yesteryear uh, you know, of ancient mythology. He was and is a flesh and blood human who walked among us, who lived among us, you know, Emmanuel, God with us. And so Paul is not dismissing the big idea of wisdom. He's just dismissing wisdom as it has been presented thus far in popular culture. And so Paul really endorses, if you will, a God brand of wisdom, which, which we're calling today the unwisdom of God. Now in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, verse 6, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. In other words, but not the wisdom of this age, he goes on, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. As, I, as I've been studying and as we've been studying Revelation on Wednesday evenings and bringing that to a close, what always amazes me is, is uh, how mankind misses true wisdom and true truth. And, and we even see that in the last days. And then verse 7 of 1 Corinthians, No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So what is, what is God's wisdom? Well, God's wisdom is literally the message of the cross, the foundational facts of the gospel presentation. He really sums this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, where he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Well, what was that? First of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Secondly, that He was buried... And then thirdly, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the fact that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected proves that he was and is who he said he was, who he claimed to be. Jesus Christ, this is the unwisdom of God, Jesus Christ conquered death, conquered hell, conquered the grave, which makes him unique among all the philosophers of every age and all the gurus who, 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 who claim to know the truth today. Now, Jesus didn't claim to merely know the truth or teach the truth. Jesus claimed to be the truth. 
Big difference. John 14, 6, Jesus speaking, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here it is, God's wisdom, that is everything we need to know about living, can be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about a relationship that you might or might not have in a church, although a good church can certainly help you along the way. But I'm talking about a personal, outside these four walls, relationship with none other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. A relationship where Jesus walks with you. A relationship where, where he talks with you. A relationship where where where. You're abiding with him, and he's abiding with you. And it's living, and it's growing, and it's becoming life-changing. You see, everything you and I need to know about life, everything that we could ever need in order to effectively live the way God wants us to live our life, can be found then in that relationship with Jesus Christ. What am I saying? I am simply saying today, Jesus is all you need. Amen. It all comes down to him and nothing more. You remember from a few weeks ago when I was preaching on the message of the cross and I ended with the illustration about the two thieves. And the one says, well, as he gets to heaven and the angel says, why should I allow you in? And he says, well, I don't know, but the man on the middle cross said I could come. You know, that idea. It's all about him. That's why Paul said in today's text, in verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Once again, Jesus Christ is all you and all I need. Now, while the wisdom of the world gives you these hoops to jump through, God's unwisdom couldn't be simpler. We complicate things. God makes it simple. Once again, the fullness of life is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look a little, clo- little more closely to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want us to consider three aspects or three outcomes of God's wisdom at work in our lives. Once again, everything you need to live this life can be found in your relationship with Christ because He is, He is the wisdom of God. So here are three ways that wisdom, the wisdom of God can make a difference in our lives. Number one, the first thing is God's wisdom will bring with it a life of power. A life of power. Now, Paul mentions the idea of power more than once. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, us, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. In verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We have 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4. Uh, he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And then verse 5. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Church, you and I need to be people of power. 
Pentecostal power. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. But Pentecostal power, the power of God. You see, all throughout Scripture, power is promised to those who surrender their lives to the will of God. You don't believe me? Well, Isaiah chapter 40, 29 through 31 says, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, some of Jesus' final words to his followers were also about a power-filled life. You'll recall in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But ye shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Literally, the word witness is martyr. You shall be my martyrs, those who are willing to lay down your life for the sake of the king and his kingdom. Now, next week, I know it's Pentecost Sunday, and I'm, I'm planning to shift gears a little bit, and I'll be preaching a, a separate message just for Pentecost Sunday and how we need to be clothed with the Holy Spirit, with Holy Ghost power. The Apostle Paul also talked about experiencing the power of God in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or, or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Two weeks ago, I talked about, I quoted William Barclay, and it's worth hearing again talking about the power. The gospel, he says, was and is power. Power to conquer self, power to master circumstances, power to go on living when life is unlivable, power to be a Christian when being a Christian looks impossible. Friends, we must be people of His power and experiencing His power. It's the wisdom, the unwisdom of God. This is important because in order to live this life, we can't do it on our own. We need His power. I need His power. You need His power. I can't do a thing. I was praying here this morning earlier and, and it's like, God, we can practice, we can rehearse and everything else, even the worship team, but we must have the power. We need his power. And, and you'll soon discover, honestly, that neither the ancient philosophers or their contemporary counterparts can offer much in the way of help beyond a meme here and there to post to Instagram. All right. That's because while, while the world's philosophy can present to you all these wonderful ideas that they think are wonderful, it cannot, whatever, it cannot give you the much-needed source of power to change your life and change your heart. Now, I had that back when I, was, when I wasn't saved yet, and I tried to better myself. I tried to quit certain habits. I cried, tried to quit doing certain things, and I knew I couldn't do it in my own strength. I needed help. People today say, well, you Christians, you just use your Christianity as a crutch. Well, so be it. I need a crutch. Why? Because I don't walk straight without him. I need him. You need him. We need his power. And that's what the gospel does. 
See, when a person repents of their sins, when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, and He begins to change you. He begins to transform you, because the end goal being, Romans 8, 29, being conformed to His image. And I said earlier, as long as we're still breathing, God's not done. Amen? And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you become a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You're given a new nature. You're given a new potential for God's power to come alive in you. Now, what kind of power? I said the power to change. The power to conquer sin. The power to kick bad habits. The power to live sexually pure in a messed up, sin-sick world. We say, well, yeah, but the, the, the temptation is so great, I'll just give in. Well, you, you, no, you don't have to give in because God's made a way out. You can, a person can live sexually pure in this messed up world today. The power to take control of your thought life. The power to abandon the emotional baggage we tend to carry with us everywhere we go. The power even to love the unlovable. The power to love your enemies, as Christ said. The power to serve people. The power to serve God. Even the power to suffer. Last week we sang the old hymn by William Booth called Send the Fire. And verse 3, and I love that song. But verse 3 says, "'Tis fire we want, for fire we plead, send the fire. The fire will meet our every need. Send the fire for strength to ever do the right, for grace to conquer in the fight, for power to walk this world in white. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. See, through your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have access, I have access to the power of God. We must be people of power and the wisdom of God brings with it a life of power. Number one. The second thing I want us to see is that the wisdom of God also brings with it not only a life of power, but a life of promise. Notice how they both start with P? I'm good that way, all right? It just helps helps me. There's a little phrase in verse seven that is easy to overlook. And it says, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory, for our glory before time began. I read them thinking, God, it's never about our glory. It's always about your glory. How many other houses have seen that? All right. And, and it's like, it's, it's, it's not for my glory. It's for your glory. Now, if God were to respond directly to me, he might say again, as he said in his word, it's for your glory. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. It's for your glory, the glory of my people, God said. Uh, The revivalist preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who preached that great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards often said that God's plan of redemption, the whole point of the universe, and the entire purpose for all creation was to prepare the church to be the bride of Christ, to take this group of misfits and rebels and sinners and make them into something beautiful and lovely and pure. 
Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of that group. You're part of the misfits and rebels and sinners. You're part of God's plan. And God wants to make us more like Jesus Christ. See, this is where the gospel of Christ stands in great contrast to the wisdom of the world. The world's wisdom, I call it, it's kind of a mismatch of, well, life is rotten, then you die. You might as well enjoy yourself as much as you can, or not. Maybe instead you should reject every comfort the world can offer, because what difference will it make anyway? We're all going to die, and after that there's nothing, so, so why even try? You know, That's the world's way of looking at things. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. You say, well, pastor, that's just talking about heaven. Well, yes, it is talking about heaven to be sure, but he's also talking about more than heaven because he's talking about the culmination of all history into God's eternal now. And so in other words, let me, let me paraphrase that. Yes, Paul's talking about heaven, but he's also talking about the life we're living at this very moment. God has things planned for you. God has things in store for you that your, your brain can't even figure out. And it's in this life and through this life. And it's as we allow his power to work through us, as we lay, lay hold, if you will, of the promises of God. But, but that, that promise is not just for the there and then. It's for the here and now. Amen. He is saying it's beyond our ability to imagine all that God has prepared for his people. For you, right now, right here on earth. And I know it, I, we go through trials, we go through tribulations, uh, there's, there's, there's heart, heartaches, there's persecutions, there's setbacks, there's sufferings. Guess what? Life doesn't always work out the way we want it to. That's called life, right? And yet, in the midst of it all, I don't understand it, but I'm thankful for it. In the midst of it all, God continues to pour out his blessing in our lives. Church, your life has been marked with a promise. A promise that you'll experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. A promise of the peace of God that passes all human understanding of God being love, of purpose, of meaning, of abundance. A promise, hallelujah, that we're going to spend eternity in heaven forever and ever. I mean, we just got done with Revelation 21 and 22, talking about the new Jerusalem that God has prepared, already prepared in heaven, that's going to come down out of heaven. God's going to make everything new. Revelation 22 verse 4, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to see his face. Hallelujah. That's why I believe we all need changed bodies because this mind and this body will not be able to take in everything he has prepared for us. Amen. Eternity. I mean, come on. A promise that you will be changed in the image of Jesus Christ. You'll be like him. Glory to God. It's going to be wonderful. What am I saying? I'm simply saying that God's wisdom, his unwisdom, brings with it a life, not only of power, but a life of promise. The third thing is this. The wisdom of God brings with it a life filled with God's presence. Paul says something that might be hard to imagine. Look at verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. But we have 
but we have, the body of Christ has, the mind of Christ. Now, could that possibly be true? Can we actually learn to think as Jesus would think? Can we actually view the world as he views the world? Can we see our circumstances uh, from his perspective? Is it possible? Yes, it is, and here's why. Because we have his presence always. He is always with us. Always. Here's the deal. The more time you and I spend in his presence, acknowledging him in his presence, the more he's going to change us and the more we're going to think like he thinks. The more we'll be like him. It's kind of like two lifelong friends who can tell you what the other is thinking or what the other is about to say and they finish each other's sentences. Jill and I do this all the time. been married this past week, 39 years on Thursday. And it's kind of scary because we can just kind of look and, and tell what each other is thinking at times. All right, here's, here's the thing with Christ. The more time you and I spend with Jesus, the more we begin to think like Jesus. And of course, spending time with Jesus also includes spending time in his word, the Bible. And so if you and I want to develop the mind of Christ, may I challenge you today, spend time in the Gospels, at least for a few verses every day. One thing I've done for over the years, and I read this years ago, and it really stuck with me, and it's become mine. But, but I'll tell people, and I'll challenge people, if you really want to know the heart of God, if you really want to know the mind of Christ, I'll say, read the red. What I mean by that is, get a red letter edition of the Bible where the words of Jesus are in red print. And you can read to the Gospels, and you can know what's really on the heart of God. You can read, I've been doing this through Revelation, I mean, as well. But you can read the red and reread them and reread them and meditate on them and study this kind of thing. And you will honestly understand the mind of Christ, what's really important, the heart of God. As I said, I've been doing this in Revelation and, and, and Revelation 22, for example, the last chapter from last Wednesday. Jesus speaking, verse 7, Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon, he said. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Chapter uh, 22, 12, and 13. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20 of Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And John replied back, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, you know. And if you read the red print, you'll understand, even in the book of Revelation, what's on the mind, the heart of God. I mean, read through Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see red print there. If you read through chapter 4, you'll see red print there. If you read the red in chapter 16, verse 15, once again, Jesus speaking says, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him that he may not go naked and be shamefully expo exposed. 
Now, I say all that to say, I personally believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He could come at any moment. This is the language of what I just read to you. I am coming soon. Three times in Revelation 22. Five times in the book of Revelation. Friends, if Jesus said he's coming soon, guess what? He's coming soon. Very soon. And the idea here in, in the Greek language, Pam, where'd you go? In the Greek language, is talk about the Sunday school, is that, yes, his coming could be at any moment. And it also infers or implies that when he comes, things are going to happen quickly. And that's revelation. I said all that to say the more time you spend with him, and the more time you spend in his word, the more you begin to think like him. But we have the mind of Christ because we have the presence of Christ every day of our lives. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The Holy Spirit, John tells us, guides us into all truth. This is why Paul would say in verse 12 that we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may, what? Understand what God has freely given to us. God's wisdom, he says, is presented to us in verse 13 in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritualities with Spirit-taught words. Friends, since we have God's Spirit living in us, we can experience His presence each and every day. Each and every day. And this is important because, once again, as we need to rely on God's promises and as we must be people of his power, we also must be people of his presence. Of his presence, because we need his presence more than ever before. Former Surgeon General Vivek H. Murthy said that during his years of caring for patients, the most common pathology he saw was not heart disease, was not diabetes, it was loneliness. He said, loneliness is a growing health epidemic. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization. And yet, he says, rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. People are lonely today. In his book, The Five People, the, first, the Five People You Meet in Heaven, Mitch Album says, the only time we waste is the time we spend thinking we are alone. Now, he may not be right about everything he says, but he's right there. Because if you are in Christ, you are never alone. You are never alone. Throughout Scripture, we are told that, that we can rely on the assurance of God's presence in our lives, no matter what happens. We have Isaiah 41, verse 10. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. 
He will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Friends, we see a phrase of these words throughout Scripture. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua 1, 5, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1, 9, the Lord your God. God is with you wherever you go. Are you hearing what the Word of God says? God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. His presence is with you. Hallelujah. What a wonderful promise to stand on. Even among the last words that Jesus spoke to his followers or included with the promise of his presence, we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28. In verse 20, Jesus says, And surely... I am with you. Always, he says, to the very end of the age. He's with us. So you're never, ever alone. Ever. See, God is always as near to you as your next breath. And he's never further away than the next word that you speak. See, the wisdom of God, the unwisdom of God, brings with it a life filled with the presence of God. And as I said, friends, we must be people of his presence, filled with his power to fulfill his purpose. That's Pentecost. There's a brief exchange taking place. If you want to turn there, and it's Exodus chapter 33. And I'm winding this down. Exodus 33, if you want to turn there. Verses 12 through 16. An exchange between God and Moses. And I love this passage. Where Moses said to God in verse 12, Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said I know you by name and you have found favor with me. And then Moses says, God, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Look at verse 14, Exodus 33, 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, to God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. And then he asked these two questions, verses 16. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me? And with your people, unless you go with us. And what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see, the deciding difference for Moses was simply the presence of God. He must have his presence. And basically, Moses saying, God, we don't want the stuff. We want you. We don't need the land, the vineyards, the homes. We don't need the, the, the land flowing with milk. and we, we don't need that if we can't have your presence. If we can't have your presence, God, we're not, we're not moving from here. And Moses revealed why he said what he did, asking God twice in verse 16, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? In other words, the distinguishing mark 
on God followers is his presence. But then he asked this probing question, for what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Implied except the presence of God. That's the implication. Now today we have wonderful churches to gather people, but really what makes us any different from the local Rotary Club? In our churches we make music. We try to be good communicators. But what sets us apart from the entertainment industry? In our churches we can reach out to the needy. But what makes us different from a government social agency? See, only one thing makes us different from the rest of the world. It's God's unique presence among us permeating all that you and I do. It's not that we teach. It's not that we sing. It's not that we entertain. The world does all that. What makes us different or what ought to make us different is God among us. That's it. Now think about a list for a moment. On one side of the list includes praise and leadership and creativity and serving, and those things represent our stewardship. And yes, we ought to be working hard. We ought to be doing what we can, doing the best that we can, uh, reaching out to people, serving as best as we can. We, we get that. But on the other side of the list includes God's presence and God's power. Because only with God's presence and God's power can mountains be moved and breakthroughs happen in our cities. Only by God's power can we love unconditionally. Only the Spirit of God can help us discern the voice of God. And only with the presence of God is there a tangible encounter with His power. See, God really wants His church, and please hear me, God wants his church to go deep before we go wide. I've said for years of the Western church, it, it tends to be a, an inch deep and a mile wide. But God wants us going deeper. Now, going back to where we started, just like the uncola nuts, the lemon and the lime, combined to create this new soft drink that the soft drink industry had not previously conceived, and it became the uncola. The simple story of a small town Jewish rabbi has become the source of a new kind of wisdom. A wisdom beyond the world's ability to imagine. Kind of like the unwisdom, the opposite of what one might expect. The novelist Nicholas Mosley once wrote about what he calls the most taboo topic you can write about these days. What's the topic? Politics? No. Race? No. Religion? No. Sexuality? No. He said the most taboo topic is to talk about life as if it had any meaning. See, the wisdom of the world, when you follow the progression to its logical conclusion, is simply this. Life is random. Life is meaningless. Life is cheap. Life is insignificant. That's why we in America can kill babies and call it abortion. Because life is random, meaningless, cheap, and insignificant. However, the message that God has for his people and for his followers is just the opposite. It's the unwisdom of God. And the unwisdom of God doesn't try to explain away the human condition. 
It doesn't try to pretend that sin is not sin or that life is not hard and sometimes it's filled with pain and even at times disappointment. Instead, the unwisdom of God gives life new meaning. A meaning found in a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, and it bears repeating, everything you need to know about life is found in your relationship with Him. Everything. Everything you need in order to live your life is found in your ongoing, living, growing relationship with Him. Now, His power is the power you need. His promise is the promise to live for. And His presence is the presence that fills your life each and every day. And my challenge is simply this. Since that is true, and it is, my challenge, my exhortation to this body this morning is to embrace Jesus, the wisdom of God. Embrace Christ, who is wisdom personified. Let's stand to our feet. We'll close in prayer. If you've come today and do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you this morning to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. The Bible says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the only sin that God can't and won't forgive is the sin we don't repent of. Have you come to that place in your life where you have repented of your sin, where you have acknowledged I need God in my life. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the price that he paid when he died on the cross in your place? You see, Jesus did for you and me what we can never do for ourselves. And so have you you come to that place? Have you confessed your sin? Have you confessed it before God? Father, I pray today as we wrap this up, God, that you would truly speak to hearts and show us, God, what is required of man. Father, I pray for those today that don't know you, that today would be their day of salvation, their day of repentance, of getting their life right with you, knowing that the wisdom of man falls by the wayside, but the unwisdom of God is the way to go. So with heads bowed this morning, eyes closed, if you come this morning and do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you right where you're standing this morning to say, Pastor Brian, I need Christ in my life. I need to repent of my sin. I need to get get my life right with God. If that describes where you're at right now, I'm going to hold steady for a moment, and I'm just going to wait for you. Just put your hand up high so I can see it. Pastor, pray with me today. I need Christ in my life. I need to repent of my sin. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need Jesus, the wisdom of God, the power of God. You cannot change, and you will not change on your own. You need Him. I need Him. Just holding steady for a moment. I do this because, honestly, I want no one pointing a finger at me someday when it comes to the day of judgment and say, Brian, you never told me the truth. You never gave me opportunity. I went to a church as a boy, as a teenager, and was never given the opportunity in a church to repent of my sin and get right with God. And so I don't, I don't make any bones about this. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to get right with God.
And if that describes where you're at or not at in your relationship or lack thereof with Christ today, I want to give you opportunity to make sure before you leave this place that you're right with God. We're not guaranteed of tomorrow. I always like to say tomorrow is only a day on a fool's calendar. We're just kidding ourselves. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And if that describes where you're at today, say, Pastor, pray for me. Father, as we conclude this service this morning, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that Jesus Christ is for us the wisdom of God. God, thank you for the power of God working in our lives, working in our hearts. Thank you, God, for your promises, which are yea and amen. And thank you, God, for your everyday presence that we never, ever have to be alone because you are always with us. Thank you for your word. God, continue. God, let this word permeate every part of our being, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you all. Just wanted to invite you. This Wednesday is our last Wednesday before summer break, and I'll be finishing up kind of a conclusion to the study in Revelation, and would invite you to come for that, as well as youth and children's ministries and stuff, things going on there. Don't forget, next week, service starts at 10 o'clock a.m., 10 a.m. But God bless you all. Have a great week in the Lord.